Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Rivenous here, and this is Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold, and the second part of my interview with Gary Bruggeman, author of Minnesota's Oldest Murder Mystery, the case of Edward Phelan, St. Paul's unsaintly pioneer. Let's jump right in. So it's the spring of 1839 when John Hayes's enlistment is up. He's discharged from the army. He moves in with his new roommate, Edward Phelan in their new cabin. Um, how was that relationship? <laughs> well, we can only speculate. And like the, what's interesting is before I found the transcripts from Joseph R. Brown's murder inquiry, all we had was Jay Fletcher Williams or a few other historians. And, of course, common sense would tell you, you have big, tough Ed Phelan. Now, I did research... Uh, and it says he enlisted in the army. You know, he came from Londonderry, Ireland, which is a very tough part of Northern Ireland. And then he goes to New York. And if you do any research on where did the Irish settle in New York in the 1830s, he would have been there in 35. You have some really tough Irish slums like the Five Points, Hell's Kitchen, places like that. And that's why one, I think Phelan probably lived in the Five Points. In fact, there was a classic book called Gangs of New York that talks about the, the Irish gangs and the things that were there. So Phelan probably, you know, was living in one of the Irish slums when he came from Londonderry. And we don't know the details of how or why Phelan enlisted. You might guess that he might have done it to escape the law. Uh, now, one uh, writer, J. Fletcher Williams, did say that according to some of the interviews he had with the pioneers, that Phelan got in trouble, or he had a criminal, he was some type of a criminal in New York. And so you might speculate that maybe instead of going to prison, the judge had him enlist in the army. And anyway, he had a, a supposedly a criminal background. And so he comes to Fort Snelling, and I checked out the, some of the records at Fort Snelling. He was the tallest soldier when he was there. He was six foot two and a half, and he had a bad reputation. He was kind of a bully, uh, you know. He supposedly had a criminal background. He comes in as a private. When he retires, he's a private. And so a lot of descriptions of Phelan are very unflattering, you know. But you wonder if they're kind of describing that after the fact. Now, I do lay out in the book everything we know, any description of Phelan I put it in. Most of it is negative. But you do get this sense that he's kind of a big, tough, bully guy. Now, this big, tough, bully guy teams up with one of the most affable, nice guys in the area, a sergeant, uh, John Hayes who supposedly everybody liked and was obviously more mature, probably of a higher character than Phelan, and now they make a partnership. So it is kind of an odd couple. 
But I think um, the circumstances was they both had something to gain in the partnership. Hayes really needed a partner who was getting to the land early. Phelan had no money. He was a private, paid very little amount of money. And to stake a claim, you know, you need an axe, you need all kinds of equipment. Phelan doesn't have the money to pay it. Plus, eventually, once you settle your land, if you want to go to a land auction and eventually buy it, you're going to need probably about $200. So that's one of the one of the incentives Phelan has with teaming up with Hayes is Hayes is the money man. Hayes is also a pretty smart guy. Uh, so it, it makes sense in a way. Uh, but there's so many questions you have about the partnership of Ed Phelan and Hayes. You wish you knew, you know, you wish they would have wrote letters about it, but we don't have records. Phelan, I don't have anything really that Phelan wrote, and I can't find anything of Hayes, and so it's kind of hearsay information gathered after the fact we can connect the dots and imagine they must have had problems. However, in the murder inquiry, uh, the Jarvises were interviewed. How did Phelan and Hayes get along? And they said, oh, they got along fine. In fact, young Alphonse Jarvis said he never saw him fight, never had him a problem. Um, so you get mixed information, but that's common in every trial. You, you know, the defendant, oh, he's He's really a nice guy. I never saw a problem. And then the prosecutors bring up witnesses. No, he, he was beating up his wife. And, you know, so you get mixed stories. But the point is, the Jarvises, they did testify. They never saw Phelan and Hayes argue, at least in public. But they're living in a little shanty, and they're living there for months. So you imagine the cabin fever or whatever, and they got two different personalities, and Phelan probably had a temper, and then, you know, he gets drinking a little bit. You can easily imagine conflict and tensions. And so uh, one of the things I speculated about is that's what happened. So Hayes puts up the money. Um, you mentioned that they had separate acreage. How did that work as far as a business partnership goes? Did, did Phelan believe he would get Hayes' land if Hayes died? Well, this is, these, are, these are the questions I think anyone's going to ask. They're, they're key questions. And again, you're frustrated by there is no document. I, I don't know if they even signed anything. If, if they did sign any kind of paper, it's gone. It might have just been a gentleman's agreement. Uh, but there's all kinds of questions that would maybe in the beginning not going to cause problems, but eventually could really cause problems. Now, one of the things I did in my book, you'll probably recall, is I lay out all the evidence, all the facts, but then after I pretty much show that Phelan did the crime or at least did the killing some way, then I want to somehow tie it together in some narrative. Usually when a prosecutor prosecutes a case he's got to tell a story he's got to somehow tell some story to the jury so it makes sense and so that's what kind of led me to what what is my chapter eight where i do a fictional account of the of the murder in other words based on the evidence what do i think might have happened now again it's speculation but it's speculation grounded in the evidence. And so that's what my chapter eight is. And of course, my speculation is it's a manslaughter. It's, it's, it's not premeditated. And that's what some writers in the 19th century believed, that Phelan killed Hayes for the money and the land. Maybe he did. I go through all the angles, all the possibilities. That's a possibility. We won't know for sure what happened. But I speculate that it was just a fight. And one of the sources of the fight is once Hayes decides to move away, going to go on his own, you got a problem of how you're going to divide up the property. First of all, you got one cabin. You've got a, a, ca a canoe that they're sharing. You've got an ox cart that they're probably sharing. Uh, now, the land that Hayes, had, that Phelan had marked up for Hayes, that's pretty much settled. But uh, you know, how you divide up, oh, one more thing i got to tell you. One of the things that we do know 
is that Hayes and Phelan got together and bought cattle together. Uh, and this, the first cattle were bought while Hayes was still at the fort. So supposedly Hayes gave Phelan the money to buy the cattle, but he made the deal. Like he bargained with the Jarvises or the Perrys to how much you have to pay for the cattle. So they went in together on the purchase of cattle. How many cows they had, I'm not sure. But they did have, quote, some cattle. So if they're going to break up and go their separate ways, they got to divide the cattle. That could be a source of contention. They're going to have to decide who gets the canoe. We know Phelan had a canoe. It was a dugout canoe. We don't know all the details where it came from, but we can imagine, just using common sense, there was a lot of equipment that they probably shared. How did they divide it up? How did they divide up the cattle? So there could have been some contention there. That's my speculation. Maybe, maybe wrong. Um, now, but you asked the question, if Hayes is dead, what makes Phelan think he's going to get the territory, the land? Uh, that's something that's a legal matter. Now, he could argue, wait a minute, we were a partnership. Anybody should get it. I should get it. Now, there's no evidence that Hayes had any relic. He was a bachelor. So who, who is supposed to get his land? So Phelan might well believe he was in a position to get it. But here's the other thing. In the, in the murder inquiry of Joseph R. Brown, it is uh, part of the evidence where it says that John Hayes had left $200 in safekeeping to Lieutenant McPhail, his, his uh, platoon leader. And so Hayes didn't have any money in his cabin. So if Phelan killed Hayes, there's no money there. He's going to have to go to McPhail and get the money. Well, what makes Phelan think McPhail is going to give him the money? Now, maybe Phelan thinks he could get it from McPhail, but you're going to have to go through some legal maneuvers. So this idea of killing Hayes for his money, it's not as solid as some of the old writers made it sound like you know, they made it real simple. Hayes had money, Phelan didn't. Hay, Phelan killed Hayes for the money. Maybe, maybe he killed him for the money, the cattle, the land, maybe. But the other thing that I found out from the evidence is Phelan, I, mean, I should say John Hayes was murdered in a brutal fashion. It was overkill. His jaw was broken, his face, but I mean, it was just a... It was, you know, the medical examiner, which was Dr. Emerson, who was famous for owning the slave Dred Scott, but he was, John Emerson was the doctor, the surgeon at Fort Sun. So he did the examination of the body in 1839, and he wrote a report that <laughs> is not very impressive by our standards, but he did write it down. He described the condition of the body, the face, and how he died. And he said a blunt object, a heavy object, might have killed him. Uh, and he also said it could have been a canoe paddle. And if you, my, one of the stuff that the most exciting thing I found is in all the witness testimony, they talk about Phelan coming to William Evans' cabin on Thursday night in September 1839, and he's carrying a canoe paddle and he's all muddy. And the obvious uh, conclusion is maybe that was the night he killed Hayes, and he might have killed him with his canoe paddle, or who knows. But that's why you might speculate they had some kind of argument with a spontaneous thing. Uh, you could make a strong case that the behavior of Phelan was not consistent with someone who did a premeditated murder. If it was, he was really a stupid planner. And it seemed more, the evidence seemed to point more to a crime of passion, anger, a fight, rather than premeditated. But again, it, no matter what you do with the evidence, it's still speculation. And so you've got to go through the different possibilities. But for my money, I believe the evidence is most consistent with a spontaneous killing. Phelan was drunk and got mad or some thing triggered his temper and he just over beat up overkilled got 
mad, maybe took a canoe paddle, maybe took a club and bashed in the head of, of John Hayes. That's what I think that happened. And it, again, they probably were getting on each other's nerves. Tensions were probably high. Who knows what would have uh, triggered it. But I believe Phelan did kill Hayes. And uh, I lay it out in my book. I give all the evidence. And I, in one chapter, I just kind of walk through. What I do is first I lay out the evidence. And then I, I basically say, okay, we've got two different theories. And by the way, here's one thing where I think I was destiny really helped me if i was writing a murder mystery book you have to have a mystery once i found this murder inquiry that there was say a lot of evidence that phelan did it that's not much of a mystery you know think about it phelan's partner in a small little cabin is murdered phelan's got a bad reputation duh of course, that makes sense. Fail and kill. Usually when there's a murder, your first suspect is the husband or the boyfriend or the person you're living with. So Phelan's the obvious suspect. He fits it like a glove. That's no murder. If he killed Hayes, his partner, where is the mystery? That makes a lot of sense. So that's going to be kind of a, an unexciting book. But as fate would have it, there is a mystery here. Because other historians have suggested that an Indian killed Hayes. And this comes from the fact that there are several people that swear that an Indian by the name of Dua confessed to the killing before he died. Now, I go through that whole case. Now, this really throws the mystery out. Wait a minute. There's two suspects. There's not just Phelan. He's not the only suspect. Another Indian, a Dakota, another suspect is a Dakota Indian named Dua. And so you, that's where the mystery comes in. Who did it? Was it the Dua or was it Phelan? And so I looked at both these cases and kind of weigh them out. And as I explore the possibility of the Indian, I eventually show the, the problems with it. And I also show ways that the do-what thing can be resolved. Now, essentially what I'm doing is, okay, when I finish laying out all the evidence, I've got two suspects, one fail and one do So then I say, okay, what do we do here? I go, so I said, let's just start by examining the evidence and, and use what's called logical conclusion. If Dua, let's just start with Dua. Let's just explore the possibility that the Indian killed Hayes. Okay, if the Indian killed Hayes, then that logically means Phelan didn't do it. Phelan was innocent. Well, Phelan didn't kill Hayes. He had no good reason to lie about what he did the last time he saw Hayes. So that his story must be true. And so the argument that I gave is if you can show that Phelan lied about what he did the last night all the stuff he did during the early days of the Hayes death, then that proves Phelan's not just a liar, but it seems the logical conclusion is that he must have done the killing, because why would you lie? Now, the only argument I can come up with why someone would lie about really important events with respect to a murder is if they're covering up for a loved one. You know, if you think your son or your brother or your wife killed, you're going to cover up for him. But Phelan lived alone. He was a bachelor. He had no loved one. So who's he going to protect? He's only going to protect himself. So what I really got down to is because of that inquiry material that in Joseph Brown's casebook with all the witnesses, Phelan gives his account. The other witnesses give the account. We look it all up. And I go through it methodically, and if I can show logically that Phelan is not telling the truth, it's not possible. His story is implausible. If I can prove that the story is not possible, then you conclude Phelan is lying. And if you conclude Phelan is lying, the question is, why would he lie? Why would he lie? 
is he cr now crazy? Maybe he's crazy, but there is no evidence that he was crazy. Well, then you're left with a very logical conclusion that maybe he lied because he killed Hayes. And but then again, you're left with well, if he killed Hayes, then how do you account for Dua? Supposedly, Dua confessed. Well, then you look at the Dua, and is there a plausible explanation where maybe Dua didn't do it? And then I go through that. So you're left with two different theories, and all I can do is follow the logical consequence of each. And after you do that exercise, which suspect is the most plausible? Where does the evidence fall most strongly? On Phelan the killer or Dua? And at the end, as I find out, it's overwhelmingly on Phelan. And yes, there is some evidence, you know, on Dua, but it's it's not strong, and it's there's you know, unfortunately, no one wrote it down. And I go through all the the problems with the Dua. But I, what I believe is, Dua. First of all, there's a lot of information that's given by the people who report on Dua that's false. So the credibility comes in. You know, if they're not telling all the the accurate information, then maybe you have to question a lot of it. But I go through that Dua scenario, and uh, I think I think there's ways you can argue that Dua confessed to killing someone else, maybe one of the deserters or somebody else, or it just was a, you know, they just told the story wrong, and it was just kind of a, a myth that developed. That's a possibility. Now, what I, the reason I, I make this up, too, is that there's one historian who wrote a book in 1886 called Pen Pictures, and he interviewed James Thompson, who this is where the, most of the story comes from, James Thompson. He swore up and down that the Indian did it. And so because of that interview, Thomas Newsom, the author of the book, he flat out says, do what did it. We should no longer accuse Phelan. Case closed. So many other people who read Newsom's book, they'll come right out and say an Indian did it. So there, there is some like there, there is a bit of a tradition of some people saying the Indian did it. However, I think as I go through all the evidence, it's way stronger the evidence against Phelan. In fact, I believe it's overwhelming. It's a circumstantial, you know, evidence, but it's overwhelming. By the way, one thing is they find blood. It almost sounds like OJ. They find blood on Phelan's property. And, you know, I mean, and you know, that's one of the things I do. I go to the book. I mean, it's just so obvious the guy did it. But anyway, I, I um, you have to kind of just look at the evidence, make the best you can. But the frustrating thing is, even though we're blessed with this great casebook evidence that I never knew existed, I'm delighted that it's there, you're still frustrated that there's not enough. You get frustrated that Joseph R. Brown didn't ask enough questions. You wish there was even more investigation. But it is what it is. We're at the mercy of the dead that left us our evidence, and you try the best you can. But So Hayes' body was found at the base of Carver's cave right we don't we all it says is by carver's cave what they mean by that is anybody's guess now one of the things that i point out in the book and that's very relevant you have to get your mind around what was saint paul was like in 1838-39 there were no streets there were no real landmarks so when you're describing a location you have to be a little general you can't say you know, by the Excel Energy Center or by the intersection of Eagle and West 7th. There are no streets. So the landmarks you had were Carver's Cave, which was below Dayton's Bluff, Fountain Cave, further upriver. You also had Phelan's Landing at the, the mouth of this creek called Eagle Creek. You had Fort Snelling. You had a few landmarks, uh, but... So when the, someone says buy something, it's always a little bit mysterious. You're not clear exactly where. It's just sort of a ballpark. Now, buy Fountain Cave could have been really close to it, or it could have been a little downriver, or it could have been a little upriver. 
but it was definitely, I would say, you know, in that area of the uh, of the riverfront by uh, Dayton's Bluff. And it part of, and here's the funny thing about it: in the murder inquiry, Doctor Emerson and the soldiers that examined the body, when they looked at the body, Phelan took them to the body, and Phelan had been. At Hayes' dead body, he found, looked at the body before the doctors and the soldiers looked at it. So he was all alone with the body. And then he said he found it in the water. He took it out of the water. He see, he found it. The Part of the body was in the water. Part of it was on land. He put it all the body on land. He covered it with sand and, and grass. And then he went down river and eventually met the dispatchment of soldiers, and together they went to the body, and then they examined it. But Phelan was there at the examination. So if Phelan was the murderer, he was there right in, right there when they examined the body, and he directed them to the body. Now, this was uh, long after Phelan Hayes had been killed. The body was in the water. It's probably decomposing, and... Uh, but one of the theories that I lay out that the evidence seems to point to is that the body, even though it was found near Fountain, near Carver's Cave, it originally was located near Phelan's Landing because there's another witness who said that the one Indian told this one uh, witness that he his son saw the body up river further. So it looks like somebody moved the body. Maybe the river moved the body, or maybe Phelan moved the body. But anyway, shortly after Hayes was murdered, the biggest indictment about Phelan is Phelan spends the night at William Evans' cabin, and to his surprise, there were two guests there. There there were two guests there. One was named John, uh, uh, I got to think of his name, Stephen Scott, and one was called John Roy. And they were just on their way to Fort Stung. They stopped for a night at, at Evans' house. And Phelan comes up at night in the dark, stumbling around the dark with a canoe paddle. And he said he was looking for a lost calf, and he got lost, so he stayed at, Phelan, at, at Evans' cabin. So, so this, now what starts is a story of a lost calf. Well, when... Phelan then leaves in the morning. He walks home, and Evan and uh, uh, Stephen Scott and Roy go in their canoe and they head down river. Now they stop at Phelan's house, maybe a half hour, forty minutes later, and they want to see Hayes because Hayes was a friend of Stephen Scott. They run into Phelan, and Phelan says, "Hayes is gone." I took him across the river to look for a calf. He thought the Indians stole the calf, and of course the Indian village is on the other side of the river. Now here's what's interesting. Why Scott and Foy were going down the river, they saw further down river Phelan in a canoe, and he was like going a little ways out the river, and then he came back. It was kind of odd. And then they see him land his canoe at his landing, and then he disappears, heads to his cabin. So they come down after seeing Phelan supposedly in the river with the canoe. And Phelan says, yeah, I took uh, Hayes across the river. But Foy says, there's no way he could have crossed the river in the time we saw him. So they basically were you know, saying that Phelan's story is a lie, that it, he didn't have the time to take uh, uh, Hayes across the river. But that's what Hayes told him. That's what Phelan told him. When, the, when Foy and Scott came to Phelan's cabin, uh, Phelan told them that Hayes isn't here. I took him across the river. And anyway, so many things that Phelan told Scott and, Hayes and Foy were demonstratively false. They, you know, they didn't make sense. And here's the problem Phelan had. Thursday night he's at Evans' cabin. Joseph Brown believed Thursday night is when Phelan killed Hayes. By the way, Joseph R. Brown concluded that Phelan was the killer. But anyway, uh, Phelan comes late at night. He claims he's looking for a calf. Him and Hayes 
you know, lost a calf to the Indians, supposedly. Then Phelan, early in the morning of Friday, he walks back to his cabin, and Foy and Scott go back in their canoe, and they kind of take them a little longer. They're stopping to get liquor and stuff like that. But anyway, Foy and Scott, while they're paddling upriver, they see Phelan's canoe in the distance. They don't see it crossing the river. They just see him going out a little way and then coming back, and then he heads to his cabin. So then they land, follow, go, go up to Phelan's cabin, and ask him where Hayes is. And that's when Phelan says, I just took him across the river. Now, they, you think they would have challenged him and said, how could you take him across the river? You know, we didn't see it. But they didn't, apparently. They let him just, he, they said that. Maybe they were afraid of him. I don't know. But anyway, because of the testimony of these two witnesses, we can pretty much show that Phelan is lying. And plus, it's not possible, because what Phelan says is he comes home after all night at Evan's house. He then waits for his partner, Hayes, to eat breakfast and get dressed. Then he takes him across the river, comes back in time to meet Scott, and Foy, why go through how much time it would have taken? It's not possible. And, of course, Joseph Brown said the same thing. Phelan didn't have enough time to leave Evan's cabin, go to his cabin, which was about a mile and a half, two miles away, uh, then take Hayes across the river in the canoe and come back, and then in time to see Foy and Scott. Brown said he didn't have enough time, and I go through meticulously everything that Phelan would have done and Hayes would have done, and there isn't enough time. So right there, Phelan is lying. He's lying about taking Hayes across the river on Friday morning. Why would he lie? Well, first of all, uh, if he took Hayes across the river, Hayes should be on the other side of the river walking down to the Indian village. But Scott and Foy, there were a couple other people on the river, they never saw uh, Hayes, but you know maybe he was in the woods. But the bottom line is when Scott and Foy arrive at Phelan's Landing, Scott goes up a path and he sees a pool of blood. And he sees blood along the herbage. Now that's right on Phelan's property. Gee, Hayes is missing, he ends up dead, and you find blood on his property, that's kind of suspicious. I mean, again, all this evidence points to Phelan, you know, but the thing is we're so spoiled with DNA and all the modern forensic stuff we have now that we think that you can only prove a case if you have DNA and stuff. But, I mean, there's, the evidence against Phelan is really strong. And the only thing that could you know, help him out a bit is this Dua story. That's all he's got is the Dua story. If you didn't have the Dua story, it's a slam dunk. You know, any prosecutor would be able to convict him. But the bottom line is, in spite of that evidence, when Phelan was taken down to Prairie to Sheena Stand Trial, and of course he has to go to the nearest town with a judge, with a courthouse. St. Paul's just a primitive little village. They don't even they don't even have a justice of the peace. So they got to take Phelan all the way down to Prairie Sheen. He stands trial there. And according to Williams and the early historians, he was acquitted. And then in May of 1840, he comes back to St. Paul. And that's when he lays claim to Hayes' property. But the big question I had is, okay, if Phelan stood trial in the Fort in the uh, Crawford County Courthouse in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, then there should be records there. And I checked out at Prairie du Chien. They have records going back to 1830. So I thought, they got to have the records of the Phelan trial. They have nothing. Nothing at all. Where are they? What happened? And, you know, was there a trial there? My only speculation is that after the trial in 1839, a new county was created out of Wisconsin. It was called St. Croix County. Joseph R. Brown did it. The county seat would, would have been what is now Stillwater. They, Crawford County, 
the county seat was Prairie du Chien, and it went all the way up to what is to St. Anthony Falls. That's how big the county was. And so Joseph R. Brown says, that's too big of a county. We need a county up here. So he created a new county called St. Croix County, and he was the justice of the peace of St. Croix County. And so my theory is, although the trial might have been held in Old Crawford County, once you had a new St. Croix County, and that's where the murder took place, they simply gave all the records to St. Croix County. Uh, and I don't know what happened to those records. I just think that they got lost in transcript, or they, all Joseph Brown had a little cabin. And I think that the casebook that he has, this was, an, this was a case that he did it was before Phelan was sent to Prairie du Chien. It was probably done at Fort Snelling. And it was finished in November. He did the interviews in November 1st, 1839. Uh, and then as a result of that, he writes down that he was hiring a, a uh, sheriff, to t- a, a deputy marshal or someone to take Phelan down to Prairie du Chien. So the trial would have been held in May of 1840. And I think that's the only thing that makes sense. Why doesn't Prairie du Chien's, uh, in their Crawford County Courthouse, why don't they have the records? They probably just send them to the new county of St. Croix, and then St. Croix County lost them. So that's one of the other frustrations. And the other frustration is there are no newspapers at the time. You know, the modern crime writers, what would they do without newspapers? What would they do without court transcripts? So that's the challenge that this Phelan case has. No newspaper, no court report, no police report. All we have is the original murder inquiry of Joseph R. Brown. Now, I'm not knocking it. I'm glad we got it. We got 12 witnesses. We have Phelan's uh, testimony. Phelan gives his story. Uh, Phelan also, they also ask him some extra questions, and he gives another response. So it's precious material, and I'm very grateful for it. But you can't help but ask, I wish we had more to find out more details of this interesting case, but that's all we really have. Why do you think he was acquitted? Well, my theory, first of all, J. Fletcher Williams says, uh, Genevieve Jarvis went down to give testimony, and so did William Evans. Imagine there's like 200 miles downriver to go to Prairie du Chien. So that's a great, you know, it's really a sacrifice for witnesses to go down. They, they probably had a hard time getting witnesses. Now, you have to understand, too, that in 1839, the murder was a capital offense, and that's a hanging offense. Wisconsin had the death penalty until 1852. So this is a serious crime. Now, to get a jury down in Prairie Sheen, a 100% of them to uh, vote to hang a man, they want to be darn sure they got all the evidence. Now, if they only got a couple witnesses, and maybe the prosecutor's not making a strong enough case, you could maybe see how they end up acquitting them. Uh, if the trial would have been held in this local area of St. Paul, they might have had a better chance. But way down in Prairie du Chien, I think that was the problem, because you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think we can prove it now, but, you know, like, for example, they probably didn't have Scott or Foy down there. There were probably some key witnesses they didn't have. Um but we don't know. I mean, that's just it. I mean, maybe they had, I mean, I don't know who his lawyers, I don't, I don't, we, there's no record, there's no newspaper, there's no trial transit, so it's all speculation. We can only wonder. But what we do know is the result. Phelan was not convicted, he was released, he was acquitted. And then he came up and <laughs> he lived the final life, he ended up being a delegate to the Stillwater Convention. And then he eventually, uh, supposedly, he was convict- going to be convicted of perjury, so he takes off in 1849, and uh, actually 1850, and supposedly headed to California, and one rumor had it that he was killed in a wagon train, something. 
but uh, there's still a lot of mystery behind Phelan. And I guess the mystery lingers on in the sense that, you know, there's so many lost details because of the lost records from Prairie to Sheen. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. After his acquittal, he he still bought more claims, right? Um, Still continued to live in the area. But there were still rumors, there was still suspicion from his neighbors. They still had to be a little wary of him, right? You know, I think you hit it on the head, because according to J. Fletcher Williams, all the settlers believed he was guilty. And I think that's why he sold his claim. My belief, when he comes back in 1840, and there's an interesting anecdote that J. Fletcher Williams shares, Phelan comes back and he wants to re not just take his claim, but he believes he has the right to John Hayes's claim. And in a way, he could argue he did make the claim, and he was a partner of Hayes. So I can understand why he thinks you'd have the claim. However, the problem you have in the frontier land is if you're going to make a claim before the land surveyed, before you bought your land at action, it gets really legally strange. Who really has the right? And so there's some old traditions that were established in the frontier. And one tradition is that in order to have a legitimate claim to the land, you have to, A, have a dwelling on it, B, you have to occupy the dwelling, and C, you have to make improvements on the land. What that was doing is you want to give a person who's really improved the land, lived the land, You want to give him precedent over some land speculator who just speculates, I got all this land, they're not even living there, and they gobble up all the land. So in a claim dispute, a judge is really moved by a claimant who says, hey, I built this cabin here, I cleared these trees, I'm living here. And this guy, yeah, he might have made a couple marks on trees. Where is he? That's all he's done. He's not lived here, he's not cleared any land. Well, the judge is going to go, well, you get, you know, better claim. But again, it's all messy because as far as the federal government is concerned, they want everyone to wait until the survey crews come in, map out the land, and then you buy it legally at, a, at an auction. But, you know, people don't follow the law. But anyway, Phelan had some good arguments, but the argument he didn't have, he was in jail for a long time. He was gone for six months. He's not occupying the land. So when he gets there, the Telgarin is on the claim. And Garen can say, hey, I'm on the claim now. I'm occupying. You're gone. You lost your right to the claim. Well, Garen was an old fur trader, but a very little guy. Phelan was a big guy. So Phelan kind of bullies him, and he says, I'm going to give you a couple days. You better get off, or I'm going to throw you off. Well, then Garen talks to his Voyager friends and says, God, this Phelan's going to try to throw off me a claim. So they go in his cabin, and when Phelan comes back, his big, tough Voyager friends come out, and they threaten to throw Phelan off the cliff, leave him alone, you don't have the claim. So Garen gets to keep the claim. Now, what I found in Joseph R. Brown's casebook, is that actually there was a case before Joseph R. Brown between Phelan and Guerin, and it resulted in two hung juries, uh, and it lists the different people who were there. It was basically Phelan and Guerin went to Joseph R. Brown 
and fought over their claim. And a jury was supposed to decide. They, so they had witnesses on both sides. And the jury was like a hung jury. And then finally a settlement was made where Guerin agreed to pay for the court costs for Phelan, but he got the claim. So John Fletcher Williams, when he told that story about Guerin, he never mentioned about a court case, but I found that actually in the documents of Joseph R. Brown's casebook. So the point is, Phelan really wanted Hayes' land, but he didn't get it. He lost it in court. And uh, so then, but then he still had his land where the Excel Energy Center is. But then shortly after he returned from jail, he sold it to Joseph Rondo, which was, uh, I think it was like 300 acres and his land for $200. And then he, after he sold it to Rondo in 1840, he goes downriver kind of by... William Evans, his fellow Irishman and probably a friend, maybe the only friend he's got. And then he goes up this creek, now called Phelan Creek, and not too far from Hamsbury, he lays his claim and builds another cabin. So he leaves, really, the village. I mean, it, that area where Hamsbury, Phelan uh, Creek, that's all St. Paul now. But then it was so far from the village, there was a big ravine separating what would be you know, kind of where the Saints Stadium is and the end of the Third Street Bridge. You know, there's a big ravine under there. So that was a big separation thing. So as far, for all intents and purposes, when Phelan went out to Phelan Creek, he was leaving the village. And so I, my theory is he was just not welcome. None, none of the settlers liked him. None of the settlers wanted him there. Uh, and so he probably just said, I'll go somewhere else and get some money, get 200 bucks. And so he goes out east, and then he lives out there. And that's how he ends up being a representative of his land. They called it Prospect Hill. That's how he ends up going to Stillwater. But Phelan's original claim was like in the western end of downtown, and then he becomes a pioneer of these sites. So he's in two different places. But it's all connected to the murder case. You know, I believe if he never would have murdered Hayes, he would have stayed where he was. And maybe Hayes would have stayed where they were. And Phelan never probably would have gone out to the east side. Something about this reminds me of our, our current local controversy here in the cities regarding renaming Lake Calhoun, but Many people were upset that a popular Minnesota lake was named after former Secretary of War John C. Calhoun, especially since he was a slave owner. Well, you're hitting a sore spot with me. I actually, I wrote years ago an article in defense of Calhoun, mainly not that, you know, I just thought it was an interesting thing, a, a conversation point, a thing to stimulate the discussion of history, keep the name Calhoun, and people can find out about him. Uh, but my main contention is, look, uh, when Calhoun was Secretary of War, he wasn't known as a defender of slavery. No one was paying attention to slavery. He was a young 35-year-old nationalist who was interested in the defense of the United States of America. He was an outstanding Secretary of War. I don't care. Look, when Calhoun gets old and he becomes a senator and he defends slavery, that's outrageous. He's one of my least favorite characters. I'll criticize them as much as anybody but i look at people in their historical context and i want to be fair to the dead that aren't here to defend themselves and what bothers me is some people are reducing calhoun to this cardboard image of he's just a slave that's all you're going to remember him by well in his later years yeah he was that he embarrassed himself he criticized the declaration of independence he defended slavery he was a state rights guy uh he caused all kinds of havoc in fact uh i call him the ideological founder of the confederacy he died in 1850 before the civil war but it was his ideas that the states had the right to decide which federal laws to follow and he became a real radical state rightist. But that was only later in his life. 
When he was Secretary of War back in the 1820s during the presidency of James Monroe, he was a dedicated patriot and nationalist. He was one of the advocates to go to war against the British. And as Secretary of War, he was outstanding. He defended our northern frontier. He was the architect of Fort Snelling. He came up with the idea of it. He ordered the troops there. It was 100% fitting that you name a lake in his honor. And by the way, it was uh, Colonel Leavenworth who brought the troops up there, and they finally got horses, and they explored that prairie land. They found the fort. Colonel Leavenworth named one fort, one lake. I mean, they they found the lakes as they explored the bluff top. And Colonel Leavenworth named one lake after his wife, Harriet Lovejoy Leavenworth. And then he named one lake after his boss, Calhoun. He honored Calhoun because Calhoun, the reason the soldiers were there was because of Calhoun. The reason the fort was built was because of Calhoun. At that moment in time, Calhoun deserved to have that lake named. He never set foot in Minnesota. Now, only after 200-some years, some people in their infinite wisdom think, oh, my God, it's like they discover now, wow, Calhoun had slaves and he defended it. God forbid. Well, it's too late. We've had that name, but here's the point. I don't know if anybody walks down Calhoun and all of a sudden they're so offended, my God, we have a lake named for a, a man who defended slavery. What I think is good, you take school kids and you say, what's the name of Lake Calhoun? Huh. Why would way up north here in the North Star State where slavery was illegal, Hubert Humphrey was one of the first instigators of the Civil Rights Act, why would Minnesota have a lake named after Calhoun? It doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, well, let's explore it. Let's read about it. Let's research it. And see, as a history teacher, that's what I loved. I just loved the fact that you could open up uh, the story of Calhoun. And it's, and look, you can't, this shouldn't be Orwell and you erase history. I mean, if, you know, there's going to be things in history you don't like. There's going to be events you don't like. Like, I always would tell my students, you know, if you could remake history, the Vikings would have won four Super Bowls. But history is what happened. We had a civil war. We had slavery. These things happened. Now, what I don't understand is why people want to erase that or want to forget it. You know, when, when you talk to people who lived through the horrors of the Holocaust, their message is, we must never forget. We must never forget. And history is something that we should remember. You don't remake history. You don't cleanse it to make it nice, something that you want it to be. And, and, and then, the, but anyway, that's my problem. But if you, here's my other issue. If you're going to change the name of Lake Calhoun, do it democratically. There's all kinds of possible names, but here's the biggest problem. Lake Badewakaska, there is absolutely no record it was ever called that. Translated, that means White Earth Lake. There's no record that it was that. By the way, I wrote this letter to the Ed. There is no record that the Medewankanan Dakotas in this part of Minnesota ever pronounced B. It was Medewankatan, Mendota, not Bedota. And I, this is a long, involved story, but this is a real scandal that the historical society allowed that to happen. But there is overwhelming evidence on the side that it should be spelled M, Medewankatan, Mendota, Minnetonka. It's an M sound. Um, it's one linguist, modern linguist, and one particular Dakota woman who came up with this little idea and the historical society went along with. Now everybody repeats it. The original name is Badamakaska, and it just frustrates me and the historians who have dug into this because, what do you mean that's the original name? Where's your evidence? It was never called, but this is so frustrating. I mean, the politics that enters into history is is really hurting our country, and I, I feel bad for young kids because... You know, everything in history is now controversial. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. Um, but one could also argue that it being renamed 
has sparked great conversation about the history, history that most locals were unaware of and would continue to be unaware of had the name change never happened. Well, that's a good point, but I think that's momentarily. As time goes on, they'll totally forget about Calhoun. In fact, most people had no idea who Calhoun was. They just know Calhoun. And just like I have a school near my neighborhood named Monroe, and it was named after James Monroe. Over 140 years, there's been a school named Monroe. Now they want to change it because they found out suddenly, I guess, Monroe was a slave owner. Okay, He also tried to provide, in fact, Monrovia, Libya, Liberia is named after him, but that's another story. But anyway, that again offends me that uh, they, they're, they're selectively taking things in history and putting politics, particularly modern politics, on it. And anyway, it, we, we, every generation has a right to name whatever they want, but part of me says it should be a democratic process. It shouldn't just be a little clique of people who said this word is bad, let's rename it this word. It, like, for example, in the renaming of Calhoun, who decided, without any discussion, without any debate, without any uh, chance to give rebuttals, that it should be Bede Makaska? First of all, the B I take issue with. Second of all, the name itself I take issue with. If you want to get uh, the whole, here's the other thing I made. Lake Calhoun was a lake that the soldiers hunted and fished at. Maybe the Indians did some things, but there's, there isn't, it wasn't that special of a lake to them. The reason there was a village there was because of the Indian agent, Lawrence Tolliver, who wanted to experiment on an Indian farm where he could teach the Indians modern agriculture. And so he brought some Indians from the Minnesota Valley there and did this farming experiment. That's where Cloudman started the village. So it was really an artificial village created by the Indian agent at Fort Snelling, Lawrence Tolliver. So, you know, my idea, if you want to make a name, call it Tolliver Lake or call it Cloudman Lake or, you know, call it Humphrey. I mean, you could have a vote, you know, like when you name the wild or you, you choose the timber. You know, have a vote. But there was nothing democratic about the renaming of Lake Calhoun. It was done by a clique who decided, oh, it's not a good name. And then, of course, they deferred you know, to the Dakotas and because they were too lazy to do their homework and, or maybe intimidated by a Dakota because they think that just because you're Dakota, you're somehow expert on the, on the history of the tribe. And so that's how it happened. And every newspaper, and I hear a newspaper repeat, well, this is the original name. And they never bothered doing the research to even check, are you sure that's the original name? And what do you mean the original name? Uh, you have to go back to the 1820s, and, and the only records we have are the whites. The Indians had no written language. All that we know about, we, you know, Tolliver wrote down the speeches of the Indians, so we owe a lot to the Fort Snelling officials. We know so much about the Indians because of them. And yet, um, you know, now all of a sudden in 21st century, uh, we're just going to change things without even going back to those old records. And that's what's frustrating for a lot of the historians that I hang around with. Well, I didn't mean to, to veer so sharply off topic, uh, but, but the original point of my question is that one could make an argument that if there were ever places that needed new names, they would be the ones named after Edward Phelan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. A lake, a, a boulevard. I'm sure there are people who drive every day past them, not realizing that the name Phelan has such a notorious connection to the past. Well, I mean, this is the thing. I even cover this in my last part of the book, is if ever a lake you could argue should be renamed, it should be Lake Phelan, Lake Phelan Creek, because, again, I argue that he's a murderer. But what I do bring out is at this long stage, there's too many memories attached to Phelan. Most people don't know any connection with Ed Phelan. It's just the name Phelan. So I would not be in favor of changing the name. What I like is everybody's heard of Lake Phelan, Lake Creek, all these things. Now that's the fascinating conversation piece that, did you know that Phelan was probably a murderer? And, you know, sometimes having a name made after, named after someone who wasn't the greatest, but so what? You know, 
I mean, we have Ford Park. We have a lot of things. Ford. Uh, Henry Ford uh, got a medal from Adolf Hitler. He had anti-Semitic issues, but he was a great car maker, and he really transformed a part of St. Paul, made fantastic contributions to America. There's more to Henry Ford than just his anti-Semitism. And so, you know, when you're studying history, you bring up the total person, the good, the bad, the ugly. But to get rid of the names of places, uh, then we kind of, it seems like we're expunging history. And that's what that's the thing that bothers me. Now, I may be in a minority in that, but here's the deal. I mean, like, right now, everybody's really cool on, let's name it Bede Makaska. Well, maybe 50 years from now, they'll rename it something else. But if you can have a name that's really stood the test of time, I think that, that means something. But anyway, I would be against changing the name of Phelan, <laughs> even though I will answer anybody i believe phelan did kill hayes (laughs) and you know if i was living back in the 40s i would in fact there was a movement to change the name of phelan but it didn't work out but i mean back in the 19th century if they wanted to change it go ahead and of course now maybe someday people want to change it but people don't understand there's all kinds of businesses that have the name attached to it so it's going to cost money to change the name Right, right. So your book is available in local bookstores. Yeah, now the only catch is it's it's really almost running out of copies. It's out of almost, I'm at, <laughs> I don't know exactly how many are left, but uh, I printed um, in a local, when you do local history, usually you, 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 know, you don't do more than 3,000. I think I did 2,500, and I've got, definitely less than a hundred left and i don't know what you know i know the minnesota historical society bookstore has it you can get it at amazon but it's winding down and i'm not going to probably do another printing of it so if anybody wants to get it they should probably get it while i can because there's not that many copies that are left of course it was printed in 2013 so i have one of the hard copies but I haven't checked. Um, do, you, do you have an ebook version? Do I have a? Uh, no, I didn't put it out in ebook. I'm, I'm kind of an old 20th century person. I, believe it or not, I'm one of the few people who still doesn't have a cell phone. Uh, I like. I'm a real book fan. I like books. I like to sit under a tree and read a book. I hate reading from a screen. So as a matter of principle, I know the the publisher was thinking of doing it, but uh, I said I didn't want to do it. And maybe down the line, maybe I should have done it, but um, it's not available electronically. Okay, so there are still a few copies left. Yeah, there should be. I think the historical side should still have some more. And then you can also go on Amazon. And by the way, there's some people that probably sell them used. So they should be going on. Although what I think is, once it's discovered that they're kind of out of print, then usually with local history books, the prices go up a little bit. But I think for a while the price should go down. The original cost is nineteen ninety five. I would maybe on Ma- Amazon they can find it cheaper, but eventually um, it'll probably go up. But it depends, you know. But especially because it's not an electronic copy. So, uh, but uh, books are kind of you know the sale of books are really evolving, and some books you can buy really cheaply. But anyway, I'm hoping, my goal, I'm hoping that everybody that really has an interest, they could still get access to the book. And I I thought I printed enough of them, but I guess now I wish I would have printed a few more, but. Sure. Uh, Well, well, yeah. So so still available? Yeah, I'm almost positive the Historical Society bookstore has them, and there may be a few other uh, bookstores that have them. Of course, we're losing bookstores. That's another problem. The Garrison Keeler bookstore on uh, Snelling sold a lot of them, and they're—I think they got a new owner or something. But um, a lot of the bookstores are going under. So, right, that's true. Well, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks a lot, Eric. Again, I've been talking to Gary Bruggeman, author of Minnesota's oldest murder mystery, the case of Edward Phelan, St. Paul's unsaintly pioneer. Thanks again for joining me. I'll see you next time for another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious. And again, a quick reminder, if you're free on Thursday, June 27th, 
head on over to the Warden's House Museum in Stillwater. I'll be doing a live recording of an episode about Stillwater Prison. Reservations are asked for, even though it's free. So call 651-439-5956. All right, see you next time.